This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Fifty years after the Civil War ended, Americans reconceptualized the war in their memories from a political struggle centered on slavery into a national epic of mutual bravery and reaffirmation of American values. Since the centennial of the war in the 1960s, historians have restored slavery as a central feature in a war seen as a political struggle between two regions defined by their labor systems and their conflicting versions of the American dream. Now that the sesquicentennial is upon us, is it time for a new way of thinking about and understanding what the nation went through 150 years ago? If it is, then the first book of that new wave just might be The Great Heart of the Republic, St. Louis and the Cultural Civil War. We'll talk with its author, Adam Aronson, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you on a gray, cool March afternoon, Friday afternoon in 2012. It's uh, the last day of classes before spring break here on the campus of East Carolina University. But as always, I will not be speaking for NCU or any of its constituent uh, departments, nor will my guest speak for anything but himself. That's our legal disclaimer every week. We will, as always, be talking about incidents of the Civil War era of the 19th century, about which you can learn more from the show's website at World Talk Radio and the uh, very, very useful uh, auxiliary site www.impedimentsofwar.org, the single best site on the entire internet. Uh, Thanks to Mark Gaffney who keeps that up to date, telling you who's going to be on the show in days to come. There will not be a live show next week. It's uh, spring break, as I said, here at East Carolina University. Uh, I will be going on a limited world tour consisting of Newburn, North Carolina. Monday, if you're in Eastern North Carolina, stop by the Newburn Craven County Public Library, and we'll be talking about the Battle of Shiloh as part of the Let's Talk About It uh, series sponsored by the American Library Association. And then on Thursday, uh, March 8th, I will be speaking to the Puget Sound Civil War Roundtable in Seattle. So if you're on the other side of the continent, uh, 
got everyone covered this way, North Carolina or Washington, uh, stop by. I look forward to seeing folks I've not uh, had a chance to see before. I've not been out west in a long time and look forward to that opportunity. So no live show next uh, next Friday, uh, March 9th. Back on the 16th of March with Leonard Lemieux from North Carolina's uh, Museum of the Abermall. We'll be talking about Brian Grimes, the last major general of the Confederacy. And then uh, the following week, March 23rd, Andre Flush and his uh, book just out, The Revolution of 1861, looking at the Civil War and the Age of Nationalist Conflict, comparing it uh, in a world context to other uh, events worldwide. In a sense, that might be thought of, a, uh, thought of as something of a reconceptualization of the Civil War, looking at it less as an American event than as a world event, although certainly others have done that uh, in the past. But as I said in the introduction, uh, it's it always time to think fresh about what happened to the United States in the 1860s. Uh, over 150 years of scholarship have gone by. We have chewed over uh, whether Sickles should have moved the Third Corps forward on the uh, uh, second day at Gettysburg. Enough times, perhaps. Uh, still tasty. People are still interested in talking about it. But uh, it, it has has enough water gone under the bridge where it is time to rethink the whole intellectual project. That's a big order and brings us to our book today, which is called The Great Heart of the Republic, St. Louis and the Cultural Civil War, uh, and its author, Adam Aronson. Uh, Professor Aronson, are you there? Yes, uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for, for joining me today. Well, you and I have not met. Uh, I, I hope we can go by first names and be informal on the show. Uh, please call me Jerry. Okay. Um, the... Uh, uh, this book uh, from uh, Harvard University Press, I've heard of them, uh, showed up in, in the mailbox here one day at uh, Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, which listeners know is my tiny uh, office on the third floor of the Brewster Building uh, here at ECU. And I have to admit, when I first saw it, my thought was uh, cultural history, uh, dry, Donald Dragonland, um, specialized disdaining things that ordinary folks are interested in, like great fires or train crashes or battles. Uh, it turns out all of those things are in the book, uh, and more, and, and it's, uh, uh, it, it, well, it's quite something, as our listeners will hear about. But let me, let me start with you. Um, Adam, you are at the uh, University of Texas, El Paso, currently? That's correct. Uh, that, how did you get there? What, what's your background? What brought you to this topic? Um, well, I, I grew up in San Diego, um, and I'm actually uh, this semester at the Huntington Library, so I'm looking out at, at cloudless skies in L.A. as I talk to you. Uh -huh. um, but um, I grew up in San Diego, and I can't say I thought a lot about the Civil War growing up in Southern California. Um, after high school, I went east for college and, and eventually into grad school at Yale, um, where I got interested in history and focusing on this question of what I thought was a project about national identity, about where the West fits in, um, how to think about the North and the South. And I didn't think it was going to be a Civil War project at first, um, but I realized that if I really wanted to be a 19th century historian, I had to grapple with the Civil War. I couldn't avoid it. And um, 
the city that I thought was the best place to think about questions of North, South, and West, as well as the Civil War, um, was St. Louis. Well, I will say, and the reason for this may become apparent as we talk about it, that I find this possibly the, the saddest book that I've read for this, uh, about the Civil War in a very long time, not for the traditional reasons of, of uh, the, the horrible loss of life of the war itself, but for its its affection for the city of St. Louis. I was surprised to read in the acknowledgments at the end of your book that, that you're not from that place, that you, as you say you're a Westerner. Uh, but but this, this book shows that St. Louis could have been a contender. Uh, it could have been the center of American identity, the North, East, and South come together there. And, and, and we'll elaborate on that, but as, as listeners know, I myself grew up in Detroit, and if anyone knows about urban nostalgia and a, a longing for past greatness of the city, uh, it's those of us from Detroit. And, and you paint a picture of a city that has a, a past potential, maybe never fulfilled as the great metropolis of the, the continent, but it could have been, and and wasn't, and, and that seems to me a big part of your story. Um, Am I am I on the right track with, with interpreting where you're going with this? Yeah, definitely. I, the the way the city's hopes um, and and really what they thought is the solutions for the national problems of of the sectional crisis um, are really all over the city still today. And people locally aren't very aware of it. I mean, they they think about their history in terms of Lewis and Clark, and then often a kind of fuzzy spot because of how divided things were in the Civil War. And then uh, the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, which is also had the Olympics at that point. Um, and they, they don't think a lot about the middle of the 19th century. And as I thought back on it, my experience in San Diego also reflects a kind of uneasiness, perhaps, about the U.S. war with Mexico and then the way Californians were divided about the Civil War. Um, as you said, these are places very far from what we normally think of as traditional Civil War battlefields, traditional Civil War conflicts. But um, I, I guess I guess it's good that the, the sadness of, of the missed opportunities in St. Louis came across to you in the reading. It, it, it really did, how, how everything curdles. The, the hopes are so high and so positive. Just to, starting at the beginning is always a good idea. When you talk about the early history of St. Louis, you talk about the, uh, uh, the French uh, influence, the... the, the and, and you point out that St. Louis, in a sense, is the most northernmost Caribbean city once the French are ejected from Canada by the British in the um, French and Indian War. They hold on to St. Louis as a, an outpost, and it, it's connected to the French Empire uh, far to the south. I would certainly never have thought of St. Louis as a Caribbean city, but you make an interesting case about that. Right. The, I, in El Paso, my uh, the library of our university looks out on the U.S.-Mexico border. And we think a lot about borderlands. Um, San Diego is also a border city. Um, but in St. Louis, what I found was the historic borders, the borders that have been erased, the French borders, the Spanish borders, um, those are what really set out a lot of the geography of St. Louis. And, and when I pick up the story in earnest in the 18, 1848 and on, I'm looking at how Americans, especially Americans who now think of their countries going from sea to shining sea, how that 
changes as they experience places that had been under other other rule, especially how the French approached slavery differently than the Americans did. Well, they did. The French influence on St. Louis is partly erased, uh, as you point out, because of the Great Fire of 1849. Uh, and every person with a history education knows of Chicago's Great Fire, and local people know that Baltimore had a Great Fire, and uh, San Francisco, of course, had its Great Fire. Many other cities did, but St. the one in St. Louis, uh, not so well known. Um, right. I mean, I think, like you're saying, that in Baltimore, there's a there's a New York fire in the 1820s as well. Um, that these are important local refounding events if they're if they're kind of well um, grasped and turned into something more than just a, a local tragedy. Um, as you said, Chicago and San Francisco are two of the most dramatic events, but also we think of them that way because of how the cities were so transformed in the aftermath. The fact that this fire in St. Louis happens in the spring of 1849 um, amidst a cholera epidemic and very soon after the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo um, leads to the fact that St. Louis can stop thinking about just the north-south patterns from Louisiana to the Great Lakes um, along the Mississippi and, and start to embrace this idea, well, maybe we'll be the gateway city, the, the gateway to the west. And I think if people think of St. Louis, they think about that, but they don't think about the fact that that can be a Civil War story, too. So that that opens up St. Louis then in, in 1849. As you mentioned, the cholera epidemic uh, is also uh, upon them. The obvious uh, way to get to the West uh, through this gateway would be by, by train. And historians are, are well aware of the idea that the, the Western territories, uh, the fight over the Western territories, whether they would be free or slave, is critical to how we uh, how the war develops, or that any war develops at all. But the, the and the transcontinental railroad plays a part in that. If if there's you can't have a transcontinental railroad until you develop the territories, turn them into uh, turn the open the Mexican session land into organized territory, which Stephen Douglas does with the, the Kansas Nebraska Act. But the question is where will that railroad go through those territories? Will it go from Chicago or from St. Louis? Uh, this must have been seen at the time as, as the great opportunity for St. Louis to become the hub of the continent. Right. The, by, even by the time that the last piece of the Louisiana ter uh, Purchase Territory gets turned into Nebraska, um, separate from Kansas there, that that is already seen as a bit of a, a defeat for St. Louis. Um, part of what I realized in researching the book was that we need to think about there being a whole third agenda that actually unites Chicago and St. Louis under um, the, the vision of what the Westerners wanted. We often think of the Civil War as being about North and South, but Westerners, whether they were um, Stephen Douglas or Abraham Lincoln, whether they were Thomas Hart Benton, or Henry Clay, or even Jefferson Davis in, in large parts of his career, are very focused on what a railroad can mean for their region connecting to the West. You know, whether in Jefferson Davis's case, it's it's from Louisiana uh, and, and Houston out through El Paso uh, to San Diego, or whether it's a, a more northern route like the this, this St. Louis-San Francisco route, or eventually a Chicago route, and uh, uh, even the route that eventually gets built through partially through Canada to Seattle. Um, how, which of these routes is going to be built first, how they're going to be financed, is crucially not only the question of slavery and territories, as you said, but 
Um, the people who back the railroad think that the railroad and these new territories in the West are going to completely change the demographics of the country. That the question of free labor and slave labor on the East Coast is going to be very minor compared to the, the um, minerals and the various other resources in the West and how access to the Pacific is going to change the United States as a whole. So, so everybody wants a piece of this. The Jefferson Davis and, and Southerners imagine if they get this railroad built, it will open up new lands for, for the slave empire. Uh, if the North, if it develops in the North, they would develop new lands for free labor to expand. Um, if, if it goes from St. Louis, it will, will magnify that city, and Chicago is thinking the same thing. St. Louis is much larger than Chicago before the Civil War. Is that right? Right, right. Through, through the, the beginning of the Civil War, St. Louis is, is larger. And, and just a little bit more on what you just said, you know, the, the, we have to be careful not to think about it just about how the Northerners and Southerners did. But the Westerners okay. tried to encourage both sets to build railroads to think about the West because they figured that that secretly the West would be able to take over the other regions, that the politics of the West, the economics of the West, would really um, come to dominate the country. Um, and especially when I'm talking to Western audiences, I said that in the 20th century we can see a good amount of that happening in places like Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Phoenix. Um, what happens in St. Louis in part is that they're betting that'll happen in the 1890s rather than the 1990s. So if they can get these railroads done, if they can get this to... Uh uh, uh, to work out, then, then slavery will, will play itself out one way or another. Uh, that's not going to be the big issue. It's going to be uh, manifest destiny in, in an economic as well as a political sense that will that will make everything happen. We're going to take a short break now uh, and come back with the question, why didn't the railroad uh, flow uh, successfully westward from St. Louis? We'll talk about that in just a moment when we return with Adam Aronson. He's author of The Great Heart of the Republic, St. Louis and the Cultural Civil War. I'm Joey Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. to stay linked to your desktop or laptop, take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding? What about your business? We've got a program that will help streamline your image management. Tune in to Marketing Matters, hosted by Yasmeen Anderson-Smith. Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. 
world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Adam Aronson, author of The Great Heart of the Republic, St. Louis and the Culture of Civil War. We talked in our first section a little bit about the development of St. Louis at the intersection of North and South and West, uh, three regions rather than two competing for a different vision of America, different visions of America in the 19th century with the potential um, perhaps of expanding the country greatly to the West uh, through a transcontinental railroad. St. Louis may have been poised to be the central city uh, dominating the entire continent. That, uh, as we know, didn't happen for a number of reasons. Uh, some of them were large-scale, uh, almost metaphysical reasons. Some of them rather specific. And I'm thinking in particular of your description of the, uh, the train to Jefferson City uh, that didn't arrive. Could you talk about that and, and what it meant? Sure. Um, November 1st, 1855 was the day that St. Louis Railroad interests had decided that their Missouri Pacific Railroad, as they called it, um, was going to go from St. Louis to San Francisco. It had the funding, it had overcome the need to have Secretary of War Jefferson Davis's approval for a route through Jefferson Barracks, a military installation, installation near St. Louis. Um, and everything seemed ready. They invited all the funders, various members of the state legislature, um, a minister to give a blessing. But it was raining that day. And um, as it turned out, one of the final bridges near Jefferson City, uh, over the Gasconade River, which is near the city of Herman, Missouri now, um, it wasn't quite done. And so they put up a wooden false work bridge, they had some tests on it, and the key moment, just as that railroad is, uh, cars are, is going across, the bridge gives way, and a number of those individuals end up dead um, as, the, as the train goes right into the river there. Um, and I talk about it not only for the loss of life um, and the loss of finances, but the way it creates a, almost a loss of will for those in Missouri. They had a vision of the railroad going across Kansas um, and changing the politics of that bleeding Kansas area to, to reflect their vision, which, though they're in a slave state, they're often a city a, a attached to free soil ideas. Um, and they find themselves falling behind um, because of this loss of life and the way it changes the politics of Missouri, um, Illinois, and the Chicago interests that are aligned with folks first at Rock Island and then uh, across to Omaha, Nebraska, um, they're able to take this advantage, and the next year the Rock Island Bridge is able to succeed where the Gasconade Bridge fails. So, I mean, it really is a, a dramatic story because this is the, the cream of St. Louis political and economic society uh, all getting on one train, and then it, it crashes in the river, and, and so many of them are killed. It reminded me, reading that, of uh, Bill Freeling and The Road to Disunion talks about the fortuitous visit of some fellow secessionists uh, visiting with Charleston just uh, before the, the secession winter of 1860, and had they not been there at that time for that particular railroad opening, they might not have, uh, it might not have led to secession when it happened. He, he's arguing for contingency, and uh, specifically railroad contingency, as a factor in history. And here we see it uh, with this what if they? What if the bridge had held up? Yeah, I, I think I think that that contingency um, 
plays a, a very large role in the, in the way I've thought about the book. And, and as you said, that there are these cases where railroads and the contingency around railroads seem particularly important. Um, and I agree that I think that if this bridge had held and if St. Louis was able to get that railroad line to Westport, what's now Kansas City, and into Kansas before the Civil War, um, Missourians might have thought very differently about the way the war occurred, especially in western Missouri, and things in Kansas may have gone differently. Um, I, I think the book takes us up to that edge of, of counterfactual questions, but I think we, of course, can't really know what happens, and I, and I don't want to speculate too much about what might have happened, but I think it would have been very different. Well, it, it's a fascinating moment, and again, it's not, it, it's up to this time a local story. It's not when uh, historians generally talk about or, or would teach in a Civil War course, but uh, but it's fascinating the way you portray that. Another really interesting story that you tell in regard to the, the years just before the war is the, the rise and fall of Thomas Hart Benton, who is a name familiar to uh, people who read about the Civil War as sort of an echo. He's, he's not quite up there with Webster, Clay, and Calhoun, but he was a, an important senator, uh, and he, in, in your portrayal, he, he's a tragic figure, uh, unable to triumph over this implacable force of, of slavery. But that's not to say he's a. Uh, but he's not a classical Northern anti-slavery. Certainly not an abolitionist figure either. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, Benton. Right. I think um, Benton, even more than Clay, is really the voice of the West in these conversations, um, starting with the Missouri statehood debate and the Missouri um, Compromise in the 1820s. Um, that's what obviously makes Missouri a state, but also gives Benton that Senate seat. And he spends the three decades following in the Senate. People in Missouri sometimes say he's, he's not looking out for them because he spends all his time in Washington and thinking about national issues. But by doing things like pressing the railroad, um, and pressing surveys by his eventual son-in-law, John C. Fremont, um, that, that those connections he th thinks are most important for the whole country and especially for St. Louis. So he's really the, the voice of this Western region trying to say that the railroad will solve all problems. Um, I, I call him agnostic on slavery, and I think about popular sovereignty as, as an effort to express that agnosticism in the West to say, well, slavery, we're going to let people vote because it's just not going to matter that much, that the railroads is really going to transform the whole country. Um, and Benton is trying to push that. What happens in 1850, though, is that a more Calhounite kind of politics coming from central and western Missouri areas that have many more slaves than St. Louis um, really begin to think that's, that Missouri needs to be much cl more closely aligned with other slave states in the Deep South um, and on the East Coast and that they push him out of office. They maneuver the election such that Benton cannot be sent back to the Senate. He's briefly in the House of Representatives. Um, he thinks about running for governor. Um, he eventually starts writing some very valuable books about the history of the Senate. Um, but I see that this failure of the Western vision and of, of Benton's mode of compromise um, it, starting in 1850 is a sign that when we think about all these signs of what leads to the Civil War, um, if we want to think seriously about what the West could have offered, the fact that Benton is, is put to the side at this point um, indicates that this Western vision of compromise between the other regions is probably going to fail as it does by 1861. Well, isn't uh, Stephen Douglas, uh, is his vision, 
is the reason he goes ahead with the Kansas-Nebraska Act maybe due to the same kind of agnosticism on slavery that he just doesn't think it matters? I mean, historians have argued for many years, many decades, about why Douglas went ahead with this disastrous act. Uh, but if he, like Benton, thinks the railroad matters far more than this, this slavery nonsense, that would, that would account for it. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the way I see it. But as you say, that that the the Missouri Compromise um, last thirty years, the Compromise of eighteen fifty, if if we even want to call it a compromise, as you know, the historians have argued about, um, maybe lasts a few years. But the whole bleeding Kansas issue that begins in eighteen fifty four shows that immediately that Douglas's plan um, is not going to succeed. That it actually is bringing the United States closer to war rather than farther away from him. You mentioned that politics become a sharper brand of pro-slavery politics emerges in the 1850s, partly due to activities of people in the central part of the state where where there are more slaves, the Little Dixie area, Boone's Lake. Um, is have you uh, seen Mark Geiger's book on financial fraud and guerrilla warfare in Missouri? That struck me as one of the most original books of the past year. Uh, which is one of the most original in the current year. Missouri seems to be a, a, a hotbed for, for fresh thinking about what uh, about what happened uh, to, to bring the war about and how it happened. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on his argument that, that uh, the reason we don't have a southern Missouri today is because the planter class was financially wiped out? Well, I, I mean, just to first say something about the kind of overall focus on Missouri, I think you can look back um, also at some of the recent books on um, the guerrilla war in Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, new work on Order Number 11, on contraband camps, on what it means to have small-scale slaveholding in Missouri and how different that is than other places right on this western border. I think that because Missouri is both a border state between north and south and um, bordering or, or leading this western region, what happens in Missouri is so distinctive, and I think people are, are seeing that the different stories there are available to tell um, new new aspects of the Civil War. In terms of Geiger's book specifically, um, I, I think the kind of financial history that he's doing um, opens up really interesting uh, avenues. I know there's new work being done on um, questions of slaves as collateral uh, throughout the United States and, and other ways in which slavery didn't just affect um, the, those who were held in slavery and things like plantations, but hiring out systems and even things like, like bank loans, um, commercial ventures, international trade. Um, it helps us see a, a much wider way in which the Civil War is is affecting um, what it really means to be the United States. I think his book, like mine, points out a way in which here was this vision of what Confederates in Missouri were trying to create, and um, the fact that it gets wiped out is why it's not a story that, that people know. Um, but I think it's very valuable that he's been able to provide that research now. Well, the, your point about uh, research on slaves as, as collateral slaves uh, as part of the economic system is a good segue to uh, your discussion of Dred Scott, who, of course, lived in St. Louis, and whose case is, is known to everyone as, as one of the uh, factors that, that precipitates the war. But you, you talk about how uh, Scott is, is not a typical, is, is not what most people think of today as a typical slave. He's not a field hand, 
living under the overseer's lash 24 hours. And a lot of slaves in St. Louis are in a very different environment. It's urban as opposed to rural, for one thing. Uh, but, but they have these gradations of freedom, uh, the ones who are rented out, the ones who uh, almost look like free people to the outside. Correct. That, that Dred and Harriet Scott and their daughters, Eliza and Lizzie, are, are living you know, in their own um, home um, in St. Louis uh, on, on a back alley. And um, right, that you would think that that is... Close to, quite close to freedom, um, but of course the whole case that determines what's going to be the, the fate of African Americans who travel to free territory comes out of this situation. Um, and the, you know, as you said, most people know the kind of longer story, but there's a fascinating geography going all the way up to Fort Snelling and, and down to Corpus Christi, where uh, Dred Scott is as they prepare for the U.S. War of Mexico. Um, and it's, it's what I see in part about this older French pattern of negotiating, right? That you could kind of negotiate your way out of slavery. You could buy yourself um, in, in pieces. There were various ways that um, arrangements were made that were different in places like St. Louis or um, New Orleans than others. Other places, though, also, as you say, urban slavery was different than um, more agricultural rural slavery in general. Um, as this case changes the national picture, right, as, as they say, there's really no such thing as free territory, that slaves can really be brought anywhere, that it's a, a federal right that's protected as a property right. What I find fascinating is St. Louis actually goes the other way, that this case begins in St. Louis. St. Louis is a city and a slave state, but just after that um, decision is made in 1857, you get um, a city election where folks more linked to Benton's old vision, um, Frank Blair, Benjamin Gratz Brown, um, they win seats, and they're saying Missouri should think about gradual emancipation, that, that slavery doesn't have a place in the future of Missouri's prosperity. And that conflict um, between what we normally think of about the Dred Scott case and what actually happens in Missouri is, is part of what drew me to that event and, and really to the project in general, linking this very unique local set of circumstances with a lot of these big national events that we think of in a, in a standard way, but taking them from Missouri, thinking about them in the West, they turn out to be quite different than we thought. We sort of jump out of uh, chronological step for a minute. The memory of slavery in Missouri uh, does not pick up a lot of this. You, you point out that Dred Scott and his wife are not remembered in their old age, and his last daughter lives until 1945, and no one has any idea who she is at that time. Right. I mean, partially, she's she and her family are are, are hiding their identity somewhat because, uh, especially after the Civil War, Missouri adopts the Jim Crow policies. It, it's not a place that is able to embrace uh, racial equality after Reconstruction. Um, but when we think about it from from the ex the perspective of historians after the, the 20th century civil rights movement, to think that these individuals who had experienced such momentous moments were still alive, you know, just a few years before. Um, I've written also about how Dred and Harriet Scott's um, burial places are not marked until after the the... The, the beginning of the 1950s also. Um, and, and, and Harriet Scott's uh, final resting place wasn't rediscovered until just a few years ago. So it, it's another way in which the, these more difficult questions about slavery and emancipation 
are submerged. I mean, we're, we're more comfortable talking about gateway to the West and, and westward expansion um, and thinking about it in the abstract. But the book tries to bring forward these, these vivid stories, you know, without, as you said, some of the jargon that some cultural histories have, um, so that people can get a sense of what these people experienced and how this is still all around us. Oh, one example you give of that is the story of the last slave auction as a sort of urban legend, but I guess one enshrined even in textbooks in Missouri, uh, an event that it, it, the way people in St. Louis choose to remember slavery, but maybe one that didn't happen. Right. It, at different points, St. Louis's western, northern, and southern histories have been emphasized by different groups, um, and I think this is an example. When I came to the Civil War, people in St. Louis think of themselves as proudly Union through and through. That there was sort of that. That's what mattered. There were a lot of slaveholding families, but they were Confederate sympathizers, and they were put aside. Um, and the story went that um, on January 1st, um, on the courthouse steps, there was an effort to have one of these slave auctions. Some people say 1861, some people say 1862, um, and that you know people who wanted to defend the Union came forward and stopped the slave auction. Well, so war historians will know that especially in a, a place like Missouri, conservative unionists didn't think that ending slavery was going to be part of the Civil War. So there's already a question there about how these things relate. Um, but as I found out, that the evidence for this, this uh, event is, comes much later, uh, really in the 1890s, 1900s, the first time you see it appearing. But what you do have is, is a painting um, of a slave sale on the courthouse steps um, done in 1865 by Thomas Satterwhite Noble. But it, there's no indication that it's a sale that's being stopped. There's no indication that it's intended as a Civil War event being um, memorialized. And as my research shows, it seems like there's some sort of um, in the art critics column um, in 1866 talking about the painting as a reflection on the Civil War and his Confederate beliefs that seem to create the idea that this might be some sort of last slave sale. Um, and that's, that's the story that then gets... Um, uh, transmuted and changed into this moment of pride for St. Louisans for so long that unfortunately didn't really happen in that way. Well, we don't want to let a, uh, the, the facts of the case spell a good story, but uh, that unfortunately does seem to be the situation there. Well, the, we're, we're at the Civil War. We, we we can't do Civil War talk radio without talking about uh, the war itself. But what we'll do is take another short break, come back and talk about the, uh, the outbreak of the war, the Confederate militia at Camp Jackson, the Union militia attacking them or surrounding them, uh, and, and the, the, the open warfare in St. Louis itself. Our guest today is Adam Aronson, and we're talking about his book, The Great Heart of the Republic, St. Louis and the Cultural Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. We all lead busy lives, 
And sometimes we think we can't take care of our health. We battle food addictions, time restrictions, and media conflictions when it comes to our health. Now, you can tune in to the Dare to Be Healthy Show with host Alia Almorayed. Good health comes to those who dare to take the leap into the amazing world of natural healing. Find out what it's like to look and feel great. And finally, live your life to its maximum potential. Let Alia and her guests show you how. Dare to Be Healthy is broadcast live Mondays at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness is delighted to finally have the opportunity to fulfill the requests of our many guests and listeners to extend the Mind, Brain, and Body experience to a second hour. Tune in for The Lyceum, Critiques of Ancient and Modern Understanding with Dr. Michael Cow. The purpose of this show is to explore and expand upon mankind's continual efforts to explain why we exist. Join us each week as we continue our fireside chats with some of the most remarkable thinkers living today. The Lyceum airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Adam Aronson, author of The Great Heart of the Republic, St. Louis, and the Cultural Civil War. We've been talking about the unique role played by the city of St. Louis, especially in the years before the Civil War, at the intersection of North and South and West, uh, as the location of uh, Dred Scott and the Dred Scott case, uh, as the the home base of Thomas Hart Benton, the senator who spoke for the West and tried to bring about compromise on terms that would bring the West into prominence. The West defined as not just west of the Mississippi, but uh, the the old Northwest, the Big Ten Territory, uh, Michigan, uh, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Minnesota. All this could have been uh, its own region, in a sense, had interests different from the East, and uh, could have been led by St. Louis uh, via Transcontinental Railroad up to California, uh, but it didn't happen. Uh, the, the collapse of the, the railroad bridge on the Gasconade River in 1855 was part of it. Uh, other factors play a role. You, you listeners who want to get this book and, and see all the details. But by 1861, uh, secession does take place, and St. Louis is divided, as the, the state of Missouri is divided. There's a large German influence in St. Louis, and they rally to the Union, uh, others rally to the Confederate cause, and St. Louis does actually see bloodshed, does it not? It does. Um, as, as, we're, as you said, we've been talking about the way I set up in the book, a cultural civil war that lasts a generation, uh, you know, decades. But when it comes to the fighting of the civil war in St. Louis, what you're really looking at is an afternoon. Um, May 10th, 1861, at a place called Camp Jackson. The, uh, uh, this is where the Confederates have organized their forces, and then uh, uh, the Union, uh, I guess they're still unofficial militia at this point. Or they, right, right, you have to be careful about how, how we label everybody. I mean, that's, it, mm-hmm. it remains very disputed. But what we're, what we're looking at is the state militia has an annual gathering 
um, in this place called Lindell's, Lindell's Grove, which they renamed Camp Jackson after the Claiborne Fox Jackson, um, the governor of Missouri, someone who had been aligned with Calhounite ideas for a very long time, and who the month before, after Fort Sumter, when President Lincoln had asked for uh, a call-up of troops, called that order um, illegal and unconstitutional and not to be complied with. So, clearly he has sympathies um, with the Confederacy, but he claims, like many of the border states, that he's going to try to keep Missouri neutral. Um, what happens that day is that the federal arsenal on the other side of town is sort of nervous that, that they're going to be the next target um, for this state militia. The state militia is going to march down and gather those arms and give them to, to Confederate sympathizers. So Union troops under the second-in-command, um, a man named Nathaniel Lyon from Connecticut, um, he gathers with a group of Germans, as you said, who have been kind of informally trained by Frank Blair. Um, they've been meeting in secret at night, often marching and speaking in German. So many of them had been in armies uh, back in Europe. And they get together with a much larger force. They go, they surround the state militia, and they order them to, to surrender, which they do. Um, so it looks like this is going to be a, a bloodless day and um, that they'll all end up on the same side. Whether they always were on the same side becomes a point of contention later. But um, what happens is in the, in the process of, of uh, processing the surrender and, and taking the weapons away from the state militia, some shots rang out. People grab their guns. They're fighting um, through the streets around a corner and um, 30 people end up dead very quickly. Um, in something that's somewhere between a civil war battle and an urban riot. Um, that's one of the things I'm, I'm writing now about as I'm thinking about Camp Jackson, because it does play such a large role in the memory of how people think about the war. In the book, I wanted to say, well, this is really a small event in a much larger tapestry, but I'm, I'm right now writing an essay for a book on, on civil war in um, the southern cities and trying to think about this event a little more. Well, it, it, it is a fascinating event. It, it takes place, say, in, in an afternoon, uh, but it draws in all these people who are uh, significant. Uh, Lion will, will be killed shortly after Wilson's Creek, um, fighting for the Union. Uh, Frank Blair is, has a brother in Lincoln's cabinet and is, is connected uh, so everybody's connected. One thing that always fascinates me about 19th century U.S. history is how small the population is, or at least the political population. Um, because next you have uh, uh, John Charles Fremont taking over uh, command of Union forces, and as you mentioned earlier, he's uh, the son-in-law of Thomas Hart Benton. So uh, everybody. Well, and even to add to the people around Camp Jackson, among the people there. Observing is um, William Tecumseh Sherman, who was a railroad executive at the time. He's there with his son to see what will happen. Ulysses um, Grant had been at school with Lyon. He's, at, the point, at that point, a farmer just across the river in Galena. He comes over to talk to Lyon about what's happened. So it is fascinating, especially knowing what we know about what happens, to think about how many of these individuals who play such a large role um, back, back to that question of contingency. Who's there, you know, who, who nearly misses being shot, who um, could have come in a different day and had a different kind of experience, um, names that are going to matter a tremendous amount in a, in a more traditional uh, Civil War history. That's a good point. Uh, you know, Sherman and Grant emerge from, from this moment and become the leading military figures, and Lyon 
was killed shortly after, but a lot of people speculate, and it can not be anything more than speculation, but Bill Lyon could have been one of the great generals of the war had he lived, and had a straight bullet killed Sherman, and, uh, but not Lyon, might have something very different, uh, be talking about something very different in that regard. But that, that kind of contingency is, is inherent in military history, I suppose, and always comes up. Uh, the, the, there are uh, a lot of, a huge number of fascinating stories here during the war. Let me pick one out that, that listeners won't be as familiar with that what I thought was uh, curious. The story of the Western Sanitary Commission. Uh, and again, most listeners have heard of the U.S. Sanitary Commission and its rival, the Christian Commission, and, and these, the efforts of private citizens to, to give the soldiers aid and uh, comfort. But what was the Western Sanitary Commission, and why, why was it Western? Well, um, William Greenleaf Elliott was a Unitarian minister in St. Louis. Um, he was the founder of Washington University, and he, his two, two, two generations before of Elliott's had been the minister at Old North Church in Boston during the Revolution. Two generations after is T.S. Elliott, the poet. Um, but Elliott really be, thought of St. Louis as this national hub, and, and when he founded Washington University, he says it's going to be the, the Harvard of the, or Yale of, for the West, um, similarly, during the Civil War, he thinks that there are lots of needs after Wilson's Creek and other battles um, nearer to him that are not being met by the Philadelphia-based U.S. Sanitary Commission. After a while, that Sanitary Commission is under the control of Frederick Law Olmsted, the, the designer of Central Park. He actually comes out to St. Louis to convince the Westerners to work together, and he realizes that in many ways their operation is bigger and more efficient than his. Um, so he goes home and, and decides it's okay for the Union to have these these two sanitary commissions, plus, as you said, the Christian commissions. Um, they have, like many of these sanitary commissions, they have very lar a large fair, they have a raffle of items from all over the country um, trying to, to provide funds, and because St. Louis is so close to the, the regional lines, they end up helping a lot of Confederate sympathizer refugees, as well as African Americans um, escaping from slavery, as well as uh, widows and children of, of white Union soldiers um, and the, the wounded, um, really on all sides at Jefferson Barracks. Um, so again, it's an interesting way in which compromise um, and what, what I think Elliot calls fervent neutrality at one point um, can be something that's put forward as a vision of what the country might look like as it tries to come back together after this war. The people in Missouri had always lived with people from different regions. It wasn't like being from Charleston or Boston, where you might say what you want about that other region and never experience what it's like to live with those um, other Americans. St. Louis people knew people who were, who were on all sides of the conflict, and, um, and they thought very quickly during the war about how, how is the country going to be able to come back together after the fighting. And, and Elliot is, in some ways, a central figure to the identity of St. Louis. You talk about, as mentioned, founding uh, Washington University. Uh, you also talk a lot about the Mercantile Library uh, as a this central cultural institution in the city, for which I, I really couldn't think of a, a comparable institution in many other cities uh, that... Well, there, I mean, there are in there are in northern cities. I mean, Mercantile Library reflects things like the Boston Athenaeum, and there are both Mercantile Library and, and Mechanics Library groups in a lot of northern cities. Um, but it is for for a slave uh, state, 
it's relatively unique. I mean, I think there's one in Charleston, for, for example, but um, it's, it's definitely more of a northern pattern uh, in this earlier period. You mentioned uh, also Eliot's vision of Washington as the, the uh, Yale or perhaps Harvard of the West, and that reminds me that uh, one of the few perks I get for doing the show is the chance to remind listeners of every opportunity that I do, in fact, have a Harvard degree. I'm doing that right now. I'm getting that out of the way for this week. Um, now we can move on. The, uh, uh, when, the, when the war ends... Uh, and, and I want to talk about the aftermath because it's really critical to your story in, in that you, you conceptualize this as a, a war, a cultural war that lasts decades, not just four years. Uh, something like, like uh, Vernon Burton's book, The Age of Lincoln, that tells the story of the whole 19th century as, as a whole with the Civil War, an integral part, but not as some, some separate incident. Uh, when Lincoln is, is assassinated, his funeral train uh, goes through many northern cities, uh, has funerals uh, uh, at, at a dozen different places, and St. Louis bids for the funeral train to make a detour on its way back to Springfield and, and stop there so they can have a, a proper funeral for the fallen president. But they they don't get it. Um, they, they get to have a in absentia kind of funeral, but it, it's St. Louis just can't catch a break. They don't get the, the, the president. Right. I, I think I, that's a telling moment in a story that I don't think a lot of people know, this effort to bring the Lincoln funeral train to St. Louis. Um, I think local folks felt that they were a very important city in the war effort, that the, the, the Union uh, support of St. Louis was crucial to, the, to the, the northern side winning the Civil War, but the fact that um, they're unable to have this funeral hints at some of the ways in which their own self-vision is not, is not being reflected in how the nation is thinking about um, these questions. Well, the, uh, they, they don't manage to fulfill their own vision in the, uh, in, in the decades that follow, and if we had more time, we would discuss in detail what goes on in the rest of the, uh, uh, of the century. But I'm going to leap ahead because we just have a few minutes left. Uh, you talk about uh, a movement, uh, unsuccessful obviously, to move the national capital to St. Louis after the Civil War. Uh, we talk about the belated construction of the, the bridge over the Mississippi at St. Louis, not completed until 1874. Uh, then you talk about some local politics that involve the, the connection or the separation, rather, of St. Louis uh, from other governmental institutions, creating a, a city-county government arrangement that uh, seems progressive and perhaps beneficial at the time, but ends up hemming in St. Louis to a fairly narrow boundary and unable to absorb its suburbs, uh, which leads to the fascinating fact that the population of St. Louis proper uh, today is about what it was in 1880. Uh, the, the metropolitan area is, is, has millions of people, but the city itself is tiny. Uh, That's correct, yeah. It lost about 100,000 um, residents from the city, mostly to the county, every decade from 1950 to 2000. And, and again, as, as a native of Detroit, uh, that city that once had uh, nearly two million is, is well under a million. Uh, the metropolitan area is large and thriving, but, but the, the urban core is, is not, and it, every city has its own story, its own reason why uh, it uh, 
either uh, survived or, or, or didn't from the 19th century, but they are uh, they are poignant stories uh, uh, for those who grew up in them and for those who didn't, uh, especially when well told as they are in uh, this book. So, as, as I said, uh, Adam, we're uh, at the end of our time, unfortunately, sooner rather than later, I was as each week. But I want to thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Thanks, I've enjoyed it. And listeners, you'll want to read The Great Heart of the Republic, St. Louis and Cultural Civil War. And as always, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.